ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us in this latest episode of Chaser um, Takeaway In-Depth Interviews and Discussions with a leading expert and an author of a um, topic of importance for British Army and Defence. Obviously, um, these are conversations between two experts and academics that don't reflect the views of British Army or Ministry of Defence. And today we're discussing COVID-19 and what it means for defence, not just for Britain, but globally. Obviously, the pandemic and the spread of the virus have brought a lot of challenges to militaries around the world, operationally, from recruitment to training to deployments, um, as well as pulling them into responses at the home front in helping hospitals as well as testing and etc. Um, but it also poses a lot of strategic questions about the direction of defense budgets, the global fault lines, and what these will mean will be an important um, aspect for us to pay attention to at all levels from operations from strategic perspective. And we are thrilled to have Shashank Joshi, who is the defense editor um, at The Economist and a long-term um, observer of defense and security issues globally to unpack some of these um, questions with us. Um, Shashank, thanks for joining. Um, for I'm going me. to jump in and ask the first question. Um, what are some key points or key developments you observed in how militaries across the world have responded or being um, taken by these developments with the pandemic and the spread of the virus? I think there are two broad ways. The first is armed forces as protagonists in this battle against COVID, right? So patrolling streets, um, developing uh, vaccines in military laboratories. Um, we see a very strong logistical aspect of this, delivering supplies, um, uh, supporting civilian workers. And the other side of it is armed forces as victims of COVID, uh, armed forces as organizations who find it difficult to practice social distancing with large numbers of uh, people uh, often living in, in confined spaces, exercising together, uh, often in the confines of very cramped warships, suffering from, in some cases, debilitating effects of, of co the coronavirus. But I think it's worth taking each of those in turn. On the first one, um, Armed forces are designed to operate in difficult situations where risks are high, where supply chains or traditional supply chains may have broken down. They're good at moving large amounts of things from A to B, um, and they're under the control of the state. And, and there's large manpower available um, when um, uh, others may not be available. So they're perfectly placed to step into these kinds of things. And as we know, they have played a, a, a very prominent role in other kinds of civil contingencies. And so they're, they're prepared for this kind of thing. It's interesting to see the sort of slight differences in approach. Uh, in some countries, states are very happy to have uniformed people patrolling the streets, enforcing lockdowns. We've seen that in Spain. We've seen that in France. In other countries, there's a kind of neuralgia about having armed forces on the streets that reflects a very different military culture. In the UK, officials have been very, very clear armed forces are not enforcing the lockdown, they're supporting um, local uh, councils, resilience forums in delivering supplies, but they're not going to be telling people to go back into their homes. And I think it's interesting to see how very different cultures of military involvement in civil contingencies plays out in this, in this context. But I think everywhere we have seen armed forces play a fundamental role in stepping in where civilian capacity has been overwhelmed. And that's true in China, it's true in Britain, it's true in America, uh, it's true pretty much any major country that we have seen. But I think what's also interesting is the degree to which we've also seen a disruption of military patterns. You know, it's an extraordinary situation where we have seen uh, an American and a French aircraft carrier 
completely taken out by a virus uh, in, a, in, a, in a really uh, dramatic way um, uh, because of the enormous difficulty of social distancing and containment of infection on a warship. So I think there's also great concerns about what this means for readiness, what this means for exercises. Defender 20, this huge American exercise in Europe, has been effectively called off, scaled down and called off. And numerous other exercises have been as well. So I think there's that duality. Armed forces are at the front line, but their activity has also been in some ways derailed and disrupted. Yeah. And, and Shashank, something really interesting emerged in the middle of all of this, right? Um, are we going to see more long-term home domain, if you like, conversation, right? So we have the sea, we have the land, we have the cyber, and few people in the U.S. have argued that now there's going to be a home domain where actually U.S. military will be much more active and see the home front as an integral part of what the DOD does. In the U.K., as you said, there's also so political and legal and, and traditional questions about what could the armed forces do. But given the fact that we are anticipating a second wave or third wave of this pandemic, or we are forecasting more natural calamities with the climate change and possibility of new types of viruses spreading. This was a scenario that was already well established. We were anticipating a pandemic, but it, when it happened, then, you know, it still caught us off guard. Are we going to see this type of home front emergency response um, as an integral part of militaries from now on? So I think it's important to remember this isn't this isn't new. Um, you know, we've we've go back to the post September 11th environment in the United States and the U.S military really emphasized home defense issues, air patrols, um, installing aerosol detectors in cities against biological attacks, um, a much greater emphasis on the protection of Washington DC, you know, entire units devoted to the task of things like that. Um, these things fade. So we always have to take a view to say, what will this look like in five or six years time? How much of this will, will retain, uh, uh, you know, will be retained and how much of it will fade away as other priorities come to the fore, as the vaccine is developed, as, as uh, it, you know, it fades into distant memory. Um, you know, in, in the UK and in Europe, um, the idea of resilience as a core task of militaries, but also as a core civil military task, something that civilian organizations and armed forces and ministries of defense have to understand and implement together has become more and more important, I think. And as, as, as your, you know, your, our viewers probably know, it's the Nordic countries that have pioneered a great deal of this, that have been way ahead of the curve. In fact, had we not had this you know, awful virus, at this, about this week, I, would, I was due to be in Sweden to uh, uh, attend the total defense exercises that they were undertaking. And, and of course, Sweden is a pioneer of total defense ideas, of stockpiling, of working with private sectors and civilian agencies to understand how big national security crises, whether led by states or caused by pandemics or natural disasters, require a military and a civilian response working hand in glove. So I think that idea of resilience, national resilience, requiring a joined up response, and of course we've had bits of that in the fusion doctrine in the UK, are going to become much, much more important. But uh, whether we'll actually see militaries pivot onto home defence as a core task, I think that really depends on how the crisis plays out. And all I would say is, if we look back at past defense reviews, pandemics were listed as tier one threats, as we now know. And there are many other threats like that. Disruption to satellites, disruption to electricity, natural disasters. But um, we are also in a period of great power competition and peer competition and, and um, state on state military threats are not going away. And I suspect that um, we shouldn't 
believe that this will result in a complete tearing up of all of those aspects of defense as well. Yeah, and I suppose um, one aspect of it which people would be worried about um, in all, all countries that have seen this lockdown process and had to bail out their economies, which is the question of defense budgets, right? Um, and that's where reality kind of kicks in. So you might uh, acknowledge the need for defense. You might see why you still need militaries and aircraft carriers and invest in research and development and forward deployments and et cetera. But in the end of the day, if your economy is suffering, there's going to be a question about how much you can invest in. Um, is that going to be a trend that we observe that actually now um, countries or alliances are going to make some hard choices on their defense budget, or are they going to keep that untouched and ring fence um, and cut off in other places or trying to balance this very difficult um, kind of reality of how much money you have and what you can do? I think, I think it's, it's completely implausible that any major country will be able to ring fence defense budgets, whatever their manifesto commitments, whatever the whatever their, 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 their situation, I think it's implausible. I'm, you know, we're already seeing elements of this. South Korea, Thailand have already cut their planned defense budgets for next year. I've seen reports that India is planning on cuts of uh, anywhere from 20 to 40 percent of non-personnel spending, which is, you know, even if you exclude their big personnel costs, is a would be a, a profound uh, a contraction in military spending. And I think European countries are not going to get away from that. The European Commission as well has, you know, had planned to spend a great deal on um, the European Defence Fund to encourage European defence investment on military mobility funds. That was already slashed. And I think we're going to see, you know, complete, a complete implosion of support for uh, popular support for military funding at that level. Um, I think it's very interesting. One of the, one of the historic impact of pandemics on statecraft and, and um, military affairs has been differential effects. Uh, pandemics have tipped the balance. If one country is affected worse than another, you know, we, going back to the Peloponnesian War in the, in the fifth century BC and, and numerous pandemics since then. In this situation, we're looking at a really global crisis in which um, pretty much all the major powers are badly affected, some worse than others, but they're all affected. There are different periods in the crisis. Um, and I, I find it very hard to imagine that any one of them is going to be able to sustain um, very high, uh, uh, unusually high levels of funding over and above the others in the, in the medium term. So I think cuts uh, and, 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 and uh, a sense of contraction in that area are absolutely inevitable. What I think is interesting is whether um, the idea of national security uh, is a beneficiary, though, whether the role, for example, in the UK, we're seeing a joint biosecurity centre that's headed up by um, uh, Tom Hurd, who is, of course, was one of the candidates to succeed as the next head of MI6. Um, he's, he's been in the um, uh, counterterrorism office within the Home Office. And, and we're seeing an application of counterterrorism and national security skills and analytical capabilities to biosecurity. And we see this in a number of other countries as well. Uh, and I think that may give a boost to national security, but it doesn't necessarily mean a boost to defense. Yeah, and that's interesting, Shashank. Obviously, all these conversations happen within uh, a strategic context, right? Um, you already hinted at the peer and uh, near peer 
adversaries and competition and sub-threshold tensions that have been building on. Um, and those grievances as well as agendas and interests have not disappeared. I mean, you look at operations in Libya by other cohorts. Um, you look at developments in Syria, even though exercises have been shrunk or called yeah. back or scaled down, you still have the question of the North and the Russian activities yeah. um, in Arctic as well as in our, you know, our allies in the north of Europe and etc. So, and it looks like to me, um, far from uh, uh, triggering a global era of peace and support together, because we need to share this planet, some of these fault lines are being galvanized, right? The US-China the conversation, for example, that has been going on for a while. I mean, people have used the language of, much to my criticism, to Thucydides' trap and kind of setting this frame as two powers set to have an um, escalation of conflict or with Russia and with Europe and et cetera. Is this pandemic going to trigger um, escalation of some of these fault lines or self-fulfilling prophecies or much needed kind of balancing act of um, activities of states in international relations today? So I think it compounds. I think you're absolutely right. It compounds many of the trends we were seeing, notably U.S.-China relations uh, and the you know rather toxic, uh, uh, toxic um, exchange of accusations. Uh, some of them you know embellished and quite lurid uh, in between the two countries in the last several weeks. But actually, it also I think compounds trends in Europe towards China, uh, in, certainly in the UK, but also in, in I see elements of this in many other countries. Um, it compounds a sense of suspicion towards China's rise, suspicion about China's motives, and concern about the way in which Chinese opacity in the Chinese political system um, uh, uh, shapes the national security challenges they pose to Europe. Um, we could see all of that unfolding over the past five years, but it's, it's, it's been thrown into stark relief in the past <laughs> month or so. Um, I would also say that beyond that, that big question of China's relationship to America and American allies, um, it also uh, raises a huge question about American leadership. Um, and, you know, I know it's become almost sort of a, a cliche to bemoan the position of America in the world over the last five years. We're all sort of sick of having that debate in some ways. But it's very hard to look at the way in which America has oriented itself in the last several weeks and conclude this is not a um, worsening of that trend, that America has been absent from some of the most significant uh, forums on global leadership. Um, at key moments, uh, its, its role has been um, uh, one that has fermented suspicion, you know, whether rightly or wrongly. I look at the way in which the, uh, the, the uh, uh, Germans were concerned about America um, trying to hoard vaccine stockpiles developed in Germany. Um, we see elements of this in, in, in other parts of Europe as well. Uh, and I think America's going to come out of this not only with its reputation for competent government and, and, and you know, uh, 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 sensible, sound administration, uh, deeply wounded, even more than it already was, but it will encourage um, effectively other powers to realize that that they have to solve some of these problems by themselves. Um, that Europe and, 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 and big Asian powers uh, and other middle powers will have to engage amongst themselves, often without the United States playing a prominent role in all of this. But the last thing I would say on that strategic question is also that there are some potential wild cards here as well. Um, countries that develop a vaccine are going to be incredibly well placed to enjoy a reputational boost. Uh, and it will be a profound um, advantage, uh, a, a, a really a, a trump card that they can play. If, if China does develop a vaccine and is in a position to be able to allocate uh, uh, its stocks and determine who benefits, um, 
that can you know upend many of these assumptions and, and it can completely change the reputational outcome of this crisis in ways we don't fully appreciate just yet. And that, I think, probably explains why we have seen reports of um, foreign states trying to hack into companies, research labs, and individuals who are working on developing vaccine and pandemic responses in UK and US and in Europe. So obviously, there is an element of who's going to achieve that um, vaccine um, and who's going to take control of the formula for it. Um, is going yeah, to what, what counts as strategic is changing, right? I mean, what you, you in the past, China's, the crown jewels that China was able to uh, uh, glean from cyber and espionage were things like the designs of the F-35 and, and, and other advanced military platforms. But of course, now we're seeing, um, we're seeing healthcare emerge as an absolutely strategic industry. Mm-hmm. Things we didn't really consider as being strategic. So, you know, now we understand that Germany's incredible uh, uh, success in testing was partly down to a flourishing chemicals industry in a network of diagnostic laboratories. Well, in the next 10 years, that is going to be a target for cyber and espionage. Um, We saw, I think, a fascinating case in Vietnam, uh, suspected Vietnamese cyber intrusions in Chinese uh, uh, Centers for Disease Control in Wuhan uh, as a way of getting early pandemic surveillance, uh, intelligence about where outbreaks may occur. Well, if we have now seen the impact of a potential pandemic, every single uh, center for disease control around the world in a major country is going to be a tier one target for this kind of espionage and intelligence. So I suspect that sort of the nature of hostile state activity is also going to evolve in, in very interesting ways. And Shashank, um, would you think that this is also triggering maybe a renewed focus on some of the technological leaps in warfare that kind of keeps the human body away from operation, right? Whether this is artificial intelligence or as we already hinted, cyber capabilities and militarization of some of these technologies, um, maybe more um, unmanned vehicles of types, um, etc., that might actually get more attention now if we kind of realize that actually this pandemic or this kind of new era is going to be here with us for a while and maybe this type of technologies might take much more of a press important role to play in the immediate term. I think that's a really interesting point. Um, you, you know what, I think that to the extent that armed forces may be uh, uh, pushed in a, in a, to explore unmanned technologies on a more accelerated timetable than they otherwise would, I'm not sure the driver of that is um, uh, a requirement to sort of down to keep the humans away and safe. Uh, I, th- I think there's still a lot of people trying to work out how these would actually look in a conflict, right? Um, I mean, are we looking at re- the recent Turkish intervention in northern Syria? We've seen some very interesting examples of the use of UAVs for precision strike in a way that I think will be uh, 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 many militaries around the world will be clambering to learn lessons from that. But at the same time, we see very unsuccessful examples of use. You know, I look at the Russian example of unmanned vehicles, ground vehicles in Syria. It's not a roaring success. You know, it kind of proves how immature many of these technologies are, actually. Um, uh, you know, we are, we are many, many years away from being able to uh, say that these can replace rather than augment humans in any meaningful way or at scale. What I think is going to drive um, a kind of um, substitution of of, of uh, 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 labor with capital in this area is going to be budgets, you know, funds, budgets, uh, you know, going back to the conversation we just had on defense budgets and the pressure on budgets, um, countries like the UK have already trimmed a great deal, but countries like India, big armed forces in which a huge proportion of the defense budget is taken up by wages, by pensions, by all of those 
um, all of those kind of, uh, you know, labor related things, I think they will be pushed into exploring greater use of these technologies just by the fact that they're more cost effective, let alone any worries about the vulnerability of humans. Um, Shashank, thank you so much. This has been a very rich conversation. Um, I think some of the key takeaways that I um, uh, inferred from this conversation was clearly in the immediate term, um, the way we operate and what we focus on has altered itself and we're learning lessons from it. And it might trigger some interesting conversations on our relationship with our countries, our societies, maybe hopefully more participation by them and more knowledge, right, for them about how, what their militaries do and can do. Mm. But the trajectories that are already in place seems to be escalating in terms of some of the geostrategic conversations, um, but obviously question of budget um, and question of how economies will recover and what kind of politics will emerge from it um, might shape a lot. So a lot of it is unknown. And we need to be a bit more realistic about what we forecast about technological leaps in artificial intelligence or unmanned drones about the um, immediate kind of context of warfare. Um, and thank you so much for everybody who listened to us as well. Thank you for having me.